Hello and welcome to episode 5 of How to Fix Magic brought to you by Team Lotus Box. My name is Anurag Das and today I'm with Zan Side, my co-host. We're going to talk about a lot of things today. Zan, what's up? How's it going? Dude, it's going pretty well. We just did our legacy tournament this past weekend and I'm feeling pumped about doing more tournaments in the future. We also watched some MPL coverage slash rivals coverage and that was pretty exciting to watch. A lot of changes have been made. And honestly, I'm happy with a lot of the changes. Magic is starting to move in the right direction after the Omnath ban. And yeah, I'm just excited to dive into it. Yeah, I, I'm kind of excited as well. There's like a whole smattering of, of developments in the standard metagame over the past few weeks. Uh, before we continue, though, don't forget that if you're listening to this episode, uh, we want to hear what you guys have to say. If you want us to talk about anything, feel free to invite us to those kind of conversations. Tweet at Team Lotusbox or email us at mtglotusbox at gmail.com. So let's get right into it, Zan. Uh, no reason to, to, you know, beat around the bush or whatever it is. Uh, the results for the MPL split week, uh, week two. And then we're also going to take a look at the standard metagame and some sort of things. Because I know you've been playing a lot of standard. You've got a lot of thoughts here, right? Definitely. So who is at the top of the MPL right now? So the top five of the MPL right now, you've got PVDDR at yep. 15 wins. This week, PV got six wins playing Rogues. We have Ray Sato, who had an incredible weekend last weekend. They had 11 wins last weekend playing Gruel Adventures. This weekend, though, they only got four wins, though, so they're at 15 uh, wins in total. Mm -hmm. And then, let's see, we have Marcio Carvalho at 14 wins now, uh, playing Gruel as well. Reduke at 14 wins now, playing Gruel as well. And Gabriel Nassif, okay, you also guessed it, right? At 14 wins, also playing Gruel now, right? Yep. So, any interesting observations from these players' deck lists? Maybe what uh, caused them to perform so well this weekend? I mean, it's no surprise. Gruel is the best deck. It's been the best deck for both weekends. I mean, Ray Sato didn't have as explosive of a weekend, but 15 wins over two weekends, I mean, that's still spectacular. So, I mean, Gruel decks actually differ besides Redukes and Nassifs. They are the most similar Gruel decks. But Marcio and Ray Sato, all three of these camps had totally different takes on the same deck. What I mean by totally different, it's like those six flex spots. And what, what you'll notice is Reed Duke and Gabe Nassif went with a Crow and War as their like blindside card to try to beat the mirror. And also they were playing more great hinges than they were Embercleaves. So Embercleave is definitely better against the, the format as a whole. But if you're trying to beat just the mirror, then the great hinge is definitely a lot better. But Marcio, thinking even further ahead, decided to play two Ambrit Shield Breakers in the main, anticipating that artifacts were the best way to get ahead. And if Ember Cleave is not the one that is pushing you ahead, then Ambrit Shield Breaker is definitely going to punish your great hinges, like the more copies of great hinges. So we end up in like kind of this weird spot. Ray Saito played a more stock build. Just had Vivians in, in the main, uh, a normal amount of Ember Cleaves in three. Not a big fan of Vivians in the main. It doesn't really improve any matchups. It's just a fair medium card. Um, I would rather even play Ox over Vivian. It does help you in one specific matchup, which is the Rogues matchup, but 
this weekend, if you're coming into it, you should not be expecting to play against that many rogues because Vivian does make 3-3 reach beasts if you want, want them to. I think reach is definitely the most relevant because Gruul doesn't have that many tools to deal with flyers. But yeah, overall, I think Gruul is still the best choice and is going to continue to dominate the format. Again, it feels like teamer energy all over again, except for you don't really have the choice of splashing that fourth color or, or okay. third color yeah. in this, in this uh, sense. Gotcha. Yeah, for rivals, it looks like LSV, Matt Sperling, Stanislav Sivka, and Bernardo Santos are winning right now, or at least at the top of their leaderboard, uh, which is kind of exciting, right? Because I know the way it works is that the top four players of the rivals uh you know just field have a chance to make it into the mpl by taking on the bottom four from the mpl so it's kind of a stacked squad in both departments and I'm, I'm honestly kind of excited to see how this stuff pans out just moving forward i mean looking at team lotus box a little bit specifically uh so obviously zach keeney and ali warfield are both in rivals right now their stats individually are 14 wins on zach playing gruel this weekend and then ali has 11 wins in total now uh, having played Esper Doom foretold. So yeah, let's let's go team Lotus Box. Hopefully we can rack up a couple more wins there, you know, put up some more results here. But all in all, strong grind. Keep it up. Definitely. Week two is definitely better than week one. For sure, for sure. So I want to take a look a little bit closer at some of the other deck lists that we've seen. Right, You gave me a little bit of analysis on Gruul so far. But before we even go into Gruul, or actually, you know what, let's start with Gruul right now. So I want you to sort of describe to me, Zan, what the purpose of Gruul is overall. I mean, like in a high sense, it just it kind of makes sense. Like we're we're playing big bodies, we're doing really really powerful things with our creatures, and then we also have like a really solid mid range plan with a lot of in, in like uh, value just like embedded into our cards, right? So, yeah. is there anything like special or exciting, like key cards in the deck that you know matter a lot, or what's your overall strategy when you pick up seven cards and you look at this deck? Well. I mean, the appeal of this deck is that it's always going to have a very strong curve, right? It has the most one drops in the top three decks. Like, I mean, if you look at rogues, it's got like max six one drops, two of them being removal spells, but it just is pushing the pedal the entire time. Like every second, you're just like one drop, two drop, three drop. It never gives your opponent a break. And so like my conclusion so far after like, these past two weeks of the splits is the only deck that really beats Gruul is itself, right? Any other deck that claims that it can beat it pretty much gets hard punished every single, the, the next week. That's, that, that basically happens every single time. Gotcha. Yeah. So it just seems like this has the best standalone creature. So we're looking at cards like what uh, Edgewall Innkeeper seems pretty important. I've mm -hmm. seen a lot of Love Struck Beasts. And I mean, Bone Crusher Giant seems to be like the card of the deck as well, right? One of the most powerful cards, Stomp and deal two damage to any target. And then you can bring back a 4-3 the next turn and just like, you know, exactly. keep keep the, the pressure on. Yeah, um, you got you also got the Spell Lands, right? It's got Ka Kazundu, right? Am I yep, Kazundu right? Mammoth. Yep. Yeah, that, that card is absolutely ridiculous. Then you got the new Bonfire in a land, which is just absolutely insane to me but like when you put all of these things together what you notice is you always go one two and three and if you don't go one two three you go two three four it just doesn't stop the amount of things that this deck has to do with its mana and the power level of it is insane and the adventure side theme allows this value game plan that is hard to hard to compete against usually the control deck can tame something like this but you can play this deck in a way that you you kind of don't run out of cards you kind of don't flood out 
Yeah, I see you. And so just going over some of the more minute details once again, something that you had mentioned to me was right, like the power of the Great Henge, right? And so this artifact seems to be especially good in, in uh, the Gruul Mirror match, which, by the way, it does feel like, and you'll, you might notice this if you're listening right now, that the dominance of Gruul Adventures in the format right now is sort of dictating absolutely how all the other decks are sort of building themselves to combat this red-green menace, right? So, for example, right, we look at Reed Duke's uh, deck list from, from this weekend, mm-hmm. and uh, it just looks like, you know, his deck is absolutely teched out to also fight other you know gruel decks right so like you mentioned you have two copies of the Akroan war which are pretty good in the mirror right like you get to active treason and then you get to do a bunch of other really cool stuff um it feels like though like when we add cards like the third great henge into the deck or when we're cutting on ember cleaves that are good against the rest of the format that we're almost like pivoting too hard to beat the gruel matchup Zen, if you had to build Gruul Adventures for this sort of like, you know, professional setting, would you build it like Greed Duke has built it or would you take a different approach? I think I would have built it closer to Marcio's, right? Like Marcio is like, all right, I see how other people are going to be preparing, but I would rather play a card that is still acceptable, right? Like it, uh, the Embrett Shieldbreakers in the main work with, I mean, obviously you don't want to be playing a two-mana 2-1, but it still ends up working with your adventure theme, as well as if you're anticipating the most amount of gruel, it ends up being a huge payoff card against specifically the Great Henge, right? It's hard for the Great Henge to get value the moment that it comes down. It's not that difficult, but yeah, like it definitely puts a thought in players' mind if they play it like on turn four, where they can't get value off of it immediately, it might just get destroyed by Ember Chillbreaker when you're playing against Marcio. So I would definitely have leaned towards something like that. I may have considered playing Brontodon in the main because that, okay. that also deals with uh, the Akron War. Right, yeah. In addition to the Great Henge and they potentially like Embercleave and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, 100% hear you on that. I, I'm kind of interested though, right? Because if Gruul, like despite this sort of... I'm, I'm, I'm almost going to call it inbreeding, right? Because you have such a small field that like it really does matter like card per card what lines up and how it lines up if it was like a much larger metagame i think it's okay to like you know sort of like you know cut corners here and there in terms of evaluation but you're literally playing against like the best players and only the best players right with the small field so i i think you know the, every single card decision definitely does matter and i feel like that gruel adventure still is coming out on top you know this week it just feels like we're just going to go down the rabbit hole even a little bit further we're going to see a little bit more inbreeding just in the sense that we might you know like see more Akroan wars or we might see more great henges and things like that and i feel like eventually once you go too off the deep end and this is a really good point that you brought up right if you go too off the deep end trying to beat one matchup you will lose percentage points against other decks in the format like the demir rogues like the doom foretold decks that we've been seeing right and Mm -hmm. i feel that's when you know we need to actually like, take a step back like you're doing, which is saying have these cards like Embercleave, have it so that we can actually, you know, play magic against the rest of the format because it's not like the rest of the formats disappeared, right? It's not a one deck format, right? And that's something that we might touch on right now, which is like, you know, after this Omnath ban, what we have left over is kind of nice, actually. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. The I mean... Where we're at right this second isn't that nice. I, I don't feel like you can win with anything. You know, a prime example of that is Andrew Cunha playing uh, blue-red control this weekend. You know, a deck like that with so many powerful cards and effects should have a shot 
to do well in the hands of Andrew Cunha. And him not doing well, I think, is a better reflection of what the format has come to, which is slowly becoming a one-deck format. But, I mean, all this inbreeding proved that if you inbreed too much, something that you didn't expect would come out on top. And that's rogues, right? Rogues kind of made a splash back. I don't think it's as good of a deck as Gruul, but when Gruul is doing stuff like this, a deck like Rogues can like come back out of nowhere and um, yeah, just start winning games again. Right. So let's talk about Rogues for a second, right? Rogues is just your your blue-black Demir archetype that has... You know, a lot of tempo elements, a lot of flash threats, uh, but there's also this like mill sub theme that has been involved where you're supposed to like, you know, like the earlier list that we've seen before, we were playing cards like Rune Crab or maybe like the Merfolk Wind Robber to put cards in your opponent's graveyards. And then you've got other cards, for example, like, you know, the Thieves Guild Enforcer, which says, you know, if your opponent has a certain number of cards in the graveyard, then you get some sort of buff, right? So yep. Thieves Guild gets, you know, more damage, more attack stats. The Soaring Thought Thief will uh, become a Lord if they if your opponent has eight or more cards in the graveyard and then even other things like lowell mage's nomination was super cool uh you know being able to give you some sort of like spell-based action against you know the gruel the gruel archetype now what's interesting here is that you know because of luris of the dream den you have to to play you know no permanence with cmc two or higher sorry three or higher it has to be two or less right yeah that was a huge deck building restriction but looks like your boy PBDDR came out here with a, a pretty big revolution to the dark type, right? So, Zan, walk me through some of the big changes that Paulo, you know, presented and, and whether you think they're good or bad. So last week, Reed Duke was actually like the pioneer of letting go of Luris and building the bigger version. PV identified that everybody was in this in midst of this rogue battle and decided to run with what Reed did last week. And I think that was honestly a pretty good call, except for his list has a lot less bad cards. I really love the addition of Brazen Borrowers. I mean, they've looked absolutely spectacular, and they're also good strategies against cards like Embercleave and even the Great Hench. And the fact that you can ninjutsu it, it back to your hand with um, the... I can't remember the name of the rogue. Is it Zara? Yeah, Zara Sand the Trickster. So that's three blue and a black for a Merfolk rogue with flash that has for two blue black, you can return an unblocked attacking rogue you control to its owner's hand. Put Zaretsan the Trickster from your hand onto the battlefield tapped and attacking. And then whenever it deals combat damage, you may put target permanent card from that player's graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. And to my understanding, Zan, if this card connects and deals damage once or twice, the game just ends. Definitely. And it's really not hard to do that when you have so many ways to protect it with counterspells. Drown and Lock being a counterspell and a removal spell, just absolutely insane. Uh, I think it was a great choice for this weekend. I would have definitely leaned towards playing something like this. I felt like his list definitely was prepared for the mirror. But one card that I've been really sad to see not a lot of these big rogue decks playing is a card like Ashiok. In my experience, that card saw Pioneer play, and whenever it hit the battlefield, it was a force to be reckoned with. Going up to six loyalty, putting a 2-3 blocker into play, that also ends up milling your opponent, not in the same way because it exiles those cards, but still, it, it, it still goes along with that same, like, the core value of this deck. So... That's a card I, I hope to see more of in the in the future as as one of the strongest finishers in the standard format right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see a couple of like Skyclave shades in the sideboard. I see a couple of, you know, cling to dust. I think that's one of the bigger like mechanics that people are using to sort of counteract these rogue strategies, right? So if the rogue deck says, I need you to have 10 cards in your graveyard, and then suddenly you're saying, uh, I'm just going to escape all my cards to, you know, play all these like spells like, what is it, Ox of Agonis. That's like the big one, right? Yeah. You know, there's one card that we didn't mention in the Gruul Adventures that, that you said that you really enjoyed, which was Phoenix of Ash, right? That oh, one seems man. pretty incredible, too. I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. I would like to say that I just kept losing to it because uh, this past weekend, I actually played in the the PTQ, right? The last qualifier, basically, for the Zendikar Pro Tour that's coming up. And I decided to go with not the obvious choice of Gruul or Rogues. I decided to go with Esper Yorion, which is actually the next deck we're going to be talking about. And I kept losing to the Phoenix because it is a really tough card deck for Yorion decks to, to deal with. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason why I think the Phoenix is so good is that the escape cost, it does cost four mana, but the number of cards you actually have to get rid of is so few, only three cards. It just like keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. And it has haste and it has pseudo dragon breathing, which is, you know, just, I think that's pretty incredible. And we see a lot of copies in, in the list that got played this weekend, but you're right. Let's talk about Esper Yorion. So specifically, I, I think the, one of the prime cards to talk about in this deck is Doom Foretold. And Zan, I'm going to tell you this, right? I actually had the pleasure of playing some Doom Foretold in uh, Pioneer, believe it or not, like a long what? time ago. I was like, oh, I know, yeah, yeah. I was like, this card looks fun. I'll try it out. So somehow, like me having only mostly played Legacy, I know a couple of these cards here or there. But Autumn Burchett has basically been pioneering this sort of archetype. And I want to uh, sort of take a look at their deck just to see what exactly is going on in the list, right? And so what I see when I'm looking at this deck list, right, is that mm -hmm. this is just sort of like a stock Esper control deck. And when I say Esper control, it's it's mostly like you draw cards, right? You play removal spells, and then you play a win condition, right? And that's basically all we're seeing going on in this list, right? Yeah. So Doom Foretold is sort of like an engine-based, it's like a recurring removal spell that says, you know, at the beginning of each player's upkeep, that player sacrifices a non-land, non-token permanent. And if they can't, then a lot of bad things happen to them and a lot of good things happen to you, right? Definitely. So I, yeah. I, I think Doom Foretold is just part of the value engine of the deck. The card that I think that really, really is the reason to play this deck is Elspeth's Nightmare. Because if you think that you're going to be playing against Gruul and you're trying to play a control deck, this card is the card that you want to wanna play. What it does is first mode destroys a creature and the second mode either takes the Great Henge or Embercleave. And then the third mode deals with the Oxes and the Phoenixes. So Elspeth's Nightmare is the reason why you would want to be playing this deck. But if you're the Gruul player, you can kind of be aware of that you need to be playing around this card, especially when it's open decklist. So it can be a lot more difficult than you think. Basically what ends up happening is this card, Elspeth's Nightmare, takes away a lot of options from the Gruul player. But in my experience, the group player still gets one window where they can slam an Embercleave and you can lose the game. And they always have it. That's, that's truly how it feels. Yeah, which is kind of interesting, right? So you're identifying Embercleave as a really crucial card against uh, you know, the control deck. And I think I sort of see that. And what's interesting here is, is like 
what we were talking about earlier, right? Which is like the more you, you know, separate from reality of what the whole meta is and focus on the gruel matchup, you start cutting these cards like Embercleave, the less uh, percentage points you have in a matchup like Esper Doom Foretold. And honestly, Zan, like, I, I think that what's kind of interesting to me is that it, ju it, do it does feel like this Doom Foretold list that Autumn has is sort of teched out again to be gruel. Talk me through some of those. So you mentioned like Elspeth's Nightmare. Are there any other interesting choices maybe like in the sideboard that we should be aware of for, for the matchup? Well, in the main deck, the finisher is one of the finishers that's been added as Dream Trawler. That makes a lot of sense. Skyclave Apparition is also one of those cards that's really good against Gruul. It just, it, it's honestly like a tempo control play that allows you to transition into Elspeth Conquers Death because... It basically makes ECD have two exile effects in the fact that they're going to deal with the Skyclave Apparition. You're going to deal with the first mode, and then you got to deal with the third mode, which is bringing Skyclave Apparition back. Then moving on to the sideboard, Baneslayer Angel is definitely one of those cards. And then you have another Maze Mind Tome and Shark Typhoon, because in the main deck, the one card that doesn't fit to beat Gruul is the Treacherous Blessings. So... There, there was probably a really difficult decision. Should we play Treacherous Blessings in the main or should we put them in the side? I personally would have been so scared of Gruul that I would have probably played the Treacherous Blessings in the side and possibly play move those Shark Typhoons into the main just because that card is another one of those finishers. And the biggest problem I've had with this deck is sometimes it just doesn't close the game. It, it just prolongs the game. And Gruul is one of those decks that doesn't stop right so i'm always afraid of losing losing the game like that yeah that's that's kind of like the the tale as old as time for control players is like you want to accrue value and you want to keep accruing value but you also do have to close the game at some point right and i know this seems kind of weird coming from me but like you could draw 60 cards and but if they're not dead then you lose you know what i mean so like because they yeah. will just eventually find a way to kill you so i i do agree that there is either a weird balance that weird tension and I think having cards like Dream Trawler or the Baneslayer Angel, like you mentioned, are pretty, pretty good. But, you know, certainly could have some more of that in, in the bank if, you, if you're yeah. picking up what I'm When you're playing here. 80 cards and you don't have Brainstorm, it becomes really hard to find that one off. Yeah, exactly. But, I, I mean, just taking a look at it, right? Like, so you did mention that, like, this isn't necessarily like a pick up whatever you want and then you can outplay your opponent, that sort of format, right? Mm -hmm. But it does seem that there's like a reasonable diversity here, at least with like a, you know, a top three sort of decks in the metagame. I get the feeling that you still think that Gruel Adventures is is strictly ahead. And I kind of want to ask you then, like for the next MPL split that we might see, like potentially what would some of the updates be in your mind? Like if you had to make any tweaks or customizations to the best deck, what would you do? I think a lot of players are going to be revisiting rogues, honestly, because of PV. So I think there's going to be a better balance than we saw this week. And based on the coverage, I'm not sure how good Esper Yorion looked, but it could potentially be more on the radar as well. Like for player, especially for players like Shota Yasuoka and um, Andrew Cunio, because I really think that the choices that they had were a lot worse which were Shota Yasuoka played Chess Guy Control and Andrew Cunio played Blue-Red Control. And like I said, the only reason why this Yorion deck is in the conversation is because of Elspeth's Nightmare. So I'm hoping that Split 3 is going to be a more balance of these three decks, but 
honestly, if, if you want to lock in your six wins, you should probably just play Gruel. Yeah, that's something that I noticed too, which was kind of crazy in my mind, right? When I was tallying up like the, the who's at the top rankings and trying to see like how they performed in this weekend. So I looked at how many wins they had at the end of the split one and then how many wins they had at the end of the split two. Most of these players are just tallying up like exactly 50% of their matches and wins. Like PV only had six wins. Marcio only had six wins. Reed only had six wins. And that's kind of crazy to me, but I guess it makes sense when you're playing with the best that they would also play the best against you. And 50-50 sort of seems like I mean, it's just crazy, you know what I mean? Like seeing a player like Reed Duke going 50-50, and that's the that's a better record in the tournament, you know what I mean? Definitely. I mean, when you're going up against the best, um, you're definitely allowed to take more losses, and that's why, like, if you've seen Worlds formats and stuff like that, you know, you can, or like the Pro Tour, X4 has generally made top eight. But we've never really seen something like that. Those tournaments are still spike-oriented tournaments. When you're looking at something like this, it would be much closer to look at the SCG tour uh, because we were kind of doing the same thing. In terms of like going week to week, there's a lot of times where we made deck choices because we knew if we made a run for top eight in this tournament that we would have to play against one of the other people at the top of the ladder. And so like, for example, for us, when we were living in the Lotus Box Magic House, a major concern we always had was... Uh, we got to prepare for the Canadians, right? And the Canadians always played amulet style decks. So we were always just like, all right, do we have a plan against amulet? And that's kind of what's going on here. You're seeing like this inbredness of having to deal with gruel. So I kind of see what's going on here. I'm kind of jealous that I'm not more part of this, but this is exactly the change that Magic needed. I wish they can put more attention on this how awesome this is for the game of Magic. I hope that the next set brings a little bit more diversity than Gruul, which I'm sure it will, hopefully not in like a negative Omnath type of way. But overall, I think we've taken a couple of steps forward in the past four weeks while we've been talking about the state of Magic. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, speaking about coverage, kind of want to transition to the next topic, which was we actually ran a tournament this past weekend, and you, me, and Jimmy from Dice City Games, and yeah. it's, I'm going to call it the Unzi Invitational because for me that's what it is. Um, but it is, it is, a, it was a sweet legacy event with basically a, over two thousand dollars in prizes. Um, and after seven rounds, we had almost we had almost a hundred players join up, which is super sweet. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this is like, you know, potentially the first of many opportunities I'm looking forward to. But the top eight was kind of scary. And, you know, after we talk about the top eight, we can go into some of, like, the production challenges that we ran into and, like, what we learned sort of from running this sort of event and, like, how we could use that knowledge to maybe apply to, like, I don't know, like, WotC or future events or things like that. But anyways, for any of the legacy players out there, the top eight of this event was actually reasonably diverse. I mean, there was a large portion that was like graveyard-based strategies. So we had like one copy of Dredge and two copies of Hogak. But then we also had Death and Taxes with Yorion that has sort of come back out of nowhere thanks to Skyclave Apparition. Mm -hmm. We've had Miracles piloted by, um, you know, our latest Legacy Grand Prix champion. Uh, then we had one copy of the Urza Echo Mono Blue deck. We had Elves. And then we had, yeah, believe it or not, Death Shadow. Do you know what deck is not there? Rug Delver. Yeah, exactly, right? Where yeah. is this deck? <laughs> Where is the deck? Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to be tier one. It wasn't even in the top 16. Which is actually kind of crazy. And I, I get the feeling that, I mean, like, it, it just might be the case that, like, some of these strategies that we're seeing succeed, like Dredge and Hogak, right? Like, they had definitely do have good game plans against 
Rug Delver. I mean, but like the snow matchups for Miracles, for example, is very competitive as well. Even like Death and Taxes, I feel as a deck is just really good against Rug Delver, given that you have like, you know, so many swords to plowshares, you've got really good board based control. And now the number one card that was really shutting down Death and Taxes, I feel was Oko. And now that you've got Skyclave Apparition, like it's just, it's just, it's a dub now, dude. Like you don't have to worry. I about think it's that. a great format now. Yeah. Like three mana answer to a three mana answer that's good against pretty much every matchup i don't know i think this format is looking really good yeah for sure the ultimate winner of this event was mark eric voked with miracles uh and i think you were talking about this on stream right so you and i we actually were commentary duos for the weekend and you said you really 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 enjoyed this deck because it made you think of sort of your testing for the scg players championship last year yeah, I mean, the snow decks nowadays all incorporate this whole theory, which I kind of use that theory to do well at the player championship. I actually never lost in Legacy. I had a 100% win rate in Legacy, which is hard to do because it's like a MPL type of event where you're only playing against good players who have like put themselves there over a long period of time. So like basically that concept is trading life for cards, right? That, that concept has kind of existed, but the way I wanted to do it was at the time we didn't have Uro, but I wanted to do it with food. So my goal was to play as many Okos as possible. I was also playing some geese, um, Gilded Goose, to, to make food, and I wanted to trade that food for cards. So the way I did that was with Bitter Blossom and with Sylvan Library. So that concept... Obviously, a whole year has gone by. Uro came out, started to do even better in Legacy. And now it's that shell is just Sylvan Library, Oko, and Uro. And Bitter Blossom kind of got cut out of that situation. And that kind of makes sense because it's kind of a slow, grindy thing. And not as many 2020s are being made. So it's a lot less necessary in today's day and age. So, yeah, I mean, it was really great seeing Mark take advantage of that type of deal, but he took it to the next level by playing eight Force Wills and protecting those threats to another level. When Uro hit the battlefield, you, you know if he got to swing with it twice that there was no way he wasn't going to find a Force, right? Either through the cantrips or just by hitting it naturally. And we literally saw it happen right in front of us on camera in the finals. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when, like, I think in clutch, I think it came at, like, especially in, like, in the finals, and even earlier in the Swiss portion, right? We saw Mark play against this mono blue Karn Echo Stompy deck twice. And I feel like that's when the extra copies of Force of Negation definitely came in clutch. Just let, you know, Mark survive through, you know, the first wave, the second wave, the third wave of proactive prison pieces that, you know, both. His opponent, Greg Dyer and Yama Killer, were playing from the other side of the table. And it's actually a fun fact, right? The only loss that Greg Dyer took in this tournament was to Mark in the finals, largely, I think, because of the combination of like Force of Negation and Pyroblast and so on and so forth, right? And yeah. so it really just does seem like the legacy format is sort of, I mean, like you could parse it in many ways, but I think one large component of this is just like this like tension between like these Simic control decks and the variety of combo decks that exist in the format, right? Like you've got your, your creature combo decks like elves and you have your great graveyard combo decks like dredge and like even like Hogak, which is a fusion of the two almost like creature and graveyard based. And then you've got, you know, like the, this 
blue-based prison deck, and then you've got, you know, other things that are going around as well, and like Doomsday, for example, and and that's where I think, you know, this is a brilliant decision to, like, add more copies of Force Negation, and, like, it, it just comes down to mana, right, and how you use your mana, and, and zero mana cards, especially, like, you know, when you're drawing so many cards with Uro, Jace, Library, all that sort of stuff, they're very, very, very good. Definitely. I can't help but feel bad for Yama Killer. I think Yama Killer would have definitely made top eight if he didn't run into Mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one interesting deck that we got the chance to feature actually was this in innovative take on Painter. Oh, or, or maybe maybe not so much. Uh, okay, he, he, I'll, I'll just spill the beans, right? So we saw is it Minotaurs? I'll let you think <laughs> about that one for a sec. Yeah, exactly, right. So this is like the the brew that one of our um, contestants brought in we did like a nice little deck tech on it too is by stefan schutz who is one of the better legacy players who hasn't played in a while but came back to you know just showcase like all right you know i'm not only creative but i am also very good and they leverage the power of didgeridoo oh my god which is an edh staple exactly yeah alongside the new zendikar rising minotaur which is morog the fury of akum and zan i actually streamed this deck yesterday and i gotta tell you like it's actually just a hell of a ride. I mean, I did go three and two, but you want me to tell you the truth, Zan? I played against Delver. I actually just crushed it. And, you have four um, Pyroblasts. I'm not surprised. Not just four Pyroblasts. There's also three Red Elemental Blasts too, right? Oh so it's like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you get to do that because you're playing Painter Servant, right? You make everything blue, and then you just start. I literally vindicated someone's uh, lands three times. Like it was turn turn one painter, turn two vindicate, turn three vindicate, turn four vindicate, and when they <laughs> died, they had only one land in play and nothing else. And I was like, this is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Turns out one mana destroy anything is pretty powerful. But Dan, so I think outside of the results of this event, I think it's also worth it to talk about like what it was like to to create this kind of event because we definitely had some highs and we definitely had some lows. And I feel like it's all just sort of part of the process, right? So walk me through maybe like some of the things you noticed, you know, during the day before, like leading up to the event, you know, because this this wasn't just like a one person effort, right? It was, there were a lot of people on the crew working together uh, and, you know, it took a lot of planning between you, me and, and Jimmy from Dice City Games. So talk me through some of your thoughts and I'll share some of mine. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the commentating, I had an absolute blast. I mean, Anurag is a hell of a partner. If you guys haven't noticed on this on this podcast, I, I get along with them really well. You guys would definitely hear in my tone if I didn't like hanging out with Anurag and talking about magic. But in terms of the actual tournament, I mean, there were a couple of hiccups that I don't think would happen if we were running this our second time around. Like, for example, we were having some difficulties getting people situated with like OBS Ninja, which was the bit of technology that would allow us to capture the screens of the players that were playing. Some people didn't have good enough internet. So we we definitely want to have a list of players who have good internet and players who don't. So it doesn't slow down the stream. There was a couple of times where the whole page would like glitch out. So I was kind of like not happy about that but those are like kind of things we got to like test run see which way we're supposed to be sharing screens like is it better to do it on discord and stuff like that so in terms of like working with the group of players that we did to run the event that was absolutely amazing but in terms of like the technological hiccups that only come and go as we do more of these shows 
that was pretty much the main problem that I saw. Yeah, for sure. I think there's like a lot of stuff that you will inevitably run into no matter how experienced you are. Like the most you can do is be prepared for that sort of stuff if you know about it already. And I mean, we're sort of starting trying to change the the way that like uh, premiere level you know, magic online gameplay is displayed, right? So, I mean, the protocol right now in most streams that you'll see, you'll go there and they'll just be capturing someone's screen from Discord and you'll look at one set of hands and you'll be like, okay, I get it. This is like perspective-based gaming. But our goal was to sort of capture both players' hands, right? So you get to see like, for example, the the Is It Painter player is doing, the, the Minotaur player. Or on the other side, you get to see what like Mark Aaron is doing and how they're trying to like craft their strategy to beat that. You know what I mean? And it's another dimension that I think is absolutely integral to just like getting the best sort of uh, magic quality you can get like you even see it in in high level uh arena based coverage right where like channel fireball or wizards of the coast they'll always show you both players hands right so that you can do that sort of analysis and say like okay well this is what's happening right now this is why players are making the plays that they're making and this is you know potentially what they need to draw to get into it right and when you lose that element i feel like coverage becomes a little a little bit less dynamic so i'm really glad that you know we are trying to sort of break it open and despite whatever failures we might run into like the one thing that i will say and this is sort of echoing zan sentiment is right like, like the, the beginning of the stream was a little bit rough as we ran into like some technical hiccups but at the end of the stream we had a fluid working machine uh, there were some things that we you know had no control over like for example like zan was mentioning like some internet issues right but the knowledge that the operators had at the end of it and just like the sort of quick thinking, the ability to like problem solve, all those sort of things. I think those are always more, way more important, you know, being able to solve stuff on the fly. Like for example, right? Keith Capstick was supposed to be like the social manager and, you know, do the tweeting and all that sort of stuff. And right. And then he also inherited like the task of making sure that players would be able to connect with our producer to share their screens and stuff like that. And, you know, that is kind of a process, right? And so whatever Keith was doing at the end, he had engineered by the very end of it, this very like a much sleeker solution that would allow people to actually get in, get out, get in, get out. And that way, you know, Travis's job, my job, your job, we could actually focus on it a lot more. Right. And, that's pretty valuable. So, you know, major props to the team Lotus box team for being able to sort of like stick it through and just like figure out solutions that worked on the spot. And, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I wanted to add is we had a be right back screen and I wish we had music for that. So dude, I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's one of like, and this is the thing too, right? Like the insights that we make from watching, like how like the numbers fluctuate when people join and when people go and stuff like that. And, and I got to say, just like having a static screen, like, so this is like, sort of like if you're running a tournament and you want some insight on this, right? The kiss of death, the kiss of death is not having something on the screen that is like, you know, engaging with the user's attention and i feel like that's something that's like pretty you know straightforward when you think about it but like there there is such a thing as actually needing downtime to sort of prep up what's coming next there is such a thing as needing downtime to sort of like because we're like we're humans on the other side of the table right like we have to actually do the stuff and get it taken care of and like what if for example like travis has to use the bathroom like mid mid show right like you yeah. know like we need those sort of like that sort of like breathing space but it is, it is, it's, it's pretty terrifying, right? And it just makes sense because, like, in the age of the internet, like, where you have, like, seven different Twitch tabs open, right? Like, you're not going to watch, like, this Be Right Back screen that has nothing going on instead of, like, maybe, like, your favorite FPS gamer or, like, the MPL split that's going on in the same weekend. You know what I'm saying? Definitely. Good lesson to learn, though, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we definitely learned a lot. I think we're definitely a group of people that are going to not make those mistakes ever again. Yeah. And 
I think it's also kind of interesting too because watching like the MPL coverage and stuff like that, you sort of get an idea of like what's good, what's bad as well, especially when they're doing it on such a high level. Something that I really do like is that they always have uh they've always got a plan for everything and like all the scenes it's 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 like you mentioned earlier, Zan, it's like a pretty simple production, but what they do, they do it right, right? Like when you're look watching the actual screen itself, you've got the player cameras, you've got the hands all set up and all that sort of stuff. And I think we're gonna adopt a lot of like the good things from the MPL as well as, you know just like add our own little spice to it. Of course, of course. I mean, that's that's always the goal. I mean, MPL coverage has definitely taken a step up and we're definitely going to be following in, in their footsteps. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, that was the topics for today's podcast. I want to say thank you so much for listening. Uh, Zan, good talk. I really, I feel sure. like we, I, I did enjoy doing the standard metagame and like, I feel like part of uh, our discussion is always like, you know, we're how to fix magic, right? So not necessarily like the gameplay and stuff behind it, but more so like the back end things. Like we talked about organized play. We talked about like esports visions, but I, you know, at the end of the day though, it is also kind of important to analyze like the health of a format, the, the state of the format and unique card choices and expertise like that. So if you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoyed this sort of discussion where we took a look at the metagame and just like looked at uh, some of like the nuanced card choices that some of the best players in the game chose to do, you know, let us know, tweet us at, team lotus box or email us at mtglotusbox at gmail.com give us your inputs we'd really love to hear it but uh yeah until then we'll see you next time this is honor and zan see you later peace